Well, you can open your Bibles this morning to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. We started into the book of James just a few months ago. It's a short yet beloved book of the Bible. Many see it not as a long and intimidating doctrinal treatise like Romans, but as a brief and approachable and practical guide to Christian living. But for a brief book that's not so heavy doctrinally, it sure gives us what some would consider the greatest doctrinal challenge in the entire New Testament, some would say. And that challenge is found in the passage we have next of James 2, 14 through 26. Here James teaches on the role of faith and works in the Christian life. He argues that faith is necessary, but that faith must be accompanied by works. The faith without works is dead and useless. That type of faith cannot save. His teaching is pretty straightforward and helpful, but the challenge comes in some verses which appear to be in direct contradiction with some other verses in the New Testament, notably those from the Apostle Paul. So look at and listen to James 2, verse 24. He says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. You read that, you might do a quick double take and think, wait, didn't Paul like say the exact opposite? And it sounds like he did. Listen to Romans 3.28, where he says, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so on the surface, it appears that James and Paul are at odds. It makes us wonder, which is it? Is this a real contradiction? That would spell trouble for the Bible. But if not, though, what do these two Bible authors mean? How are these verses reconciled? Is there a real answer? And then what does this mean for the Christian life? Well, the good news is there are answers, real answers, and we're going to find those answers. We're going to show how James and Paul are not contradictory, but complementary in their teaching on faith and works. They go together. And together they, they provide a balanced truth on salvation and Christian living that we need. And so these answers are coming. But these answers are not coming today. Before we can arrive at these answers, we need to do some groundwork first. And so here's the deal. The problem, with, the problem of James 2, it's actually not that difficult to solve. Reconciling James and Paul is not that hard if you know a little bit about the Bible, if you know a little basic theology. But the problem with this is that most Christians today don't. They don't know the Bible very well. They don't have really any handle on theology. And they're at churches that aren't helping them very much. And you mix this with the culture that seeks to eradicate God's word from every corner, and the result is an epidemic of biblical illiteracy. Christians claim that the Bible is God's inspired word. Well, that doesn't mean they're reading it. A LifeWay poll not too long ago found that only 45% of those who regularly attend church read their Bible more than once a week. Over 40% say they read just once or twice a month. One in five said they never read the Bible. 60% can't name even five of the Ten Commandments. 81% believe the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is in the Bible. It's not. And 12% believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Now, we don't expect our secular culture to know the Bible. That's the mission field. But those in Christ's church should be different. You know, we say and we sing that these are the words of life, but all too many Christians are starving, and many churches are to blame. They tell the youth pastor to just keep the kids happy and entertained, and the Sunday sermon isn't much better where the preaching of the word has been traded for music or entertainment. How does that relate to James 2? Well, to really understand what James is going to say here about faith and works and how it relates to what Paul said about faith and works. Again, you need to have a little foundation of biblical theology. You need to just know a little thing or two about what the Bible says about God and salvation and faith and works. But most people have no foundation, and that's why it's a challenge for for many. All this goes to say, by way of introduction, that we're not going to study James 2 this morning or even next week but we're going to take some time and do some good old-fashioned Bible teaching to give you the foundation you need to understand this 
passage and many like it. If you want to get what James has to say about faith and works, and you need to get what James has to say about faith and works, well, then you first need to make sure you understand what the Bible says about key concepts like law and gospel and justification and even salvation. And so that's what we're going to do. Why bother? Why do this? Why not just give you the answer real quick and move on? Well, for one, we're not in a rush. And more importantly, I want our church to be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. And like I said, it seems that the real teaching of God's word has gone missing from many pulpits today. Men still preach, but it sounds like they mostly give motivational talks. They're perhaps more concerned to come up with something clever or catchy or some hot take, a 30-second soundbite for an Instagram clip, something like that. But 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is inspired, is God-breathed. And therefore, because of that, it's still profitable for what? For teaching. For teaching. God doesn't want us to just be dumb, ignorant, and happy in Jesus. That's not good enough. Instead, he calls us to grow in the knowledge of him and his word to the best of our ability. And he wants his word taught and preached that his people might know him and his son more and more. And this deeper knowledge of God leads only to a deeper worship and joy and blessing in life. So humor me and and stick with me. And I trust that this detour of the next few weeks will be worth it. For a couple weeks, I'll be more teacher than preacher per se to help you understand some essential and foundational truths in God's word. And then we'll circle back to James 2 in the coming weeks, and then you'll see how it it all just falls right into place. It makes perfect sense, and it's so valuable what James has to say in complementing what Paul has to say about faith and works. So we'll get there. Now, that's enough of a a broad introduction. Today, we're going to start with this groundwork laying with a key and central issue, and that is the law. The law. I want us to begin by trying to wrap our minds around this huge concept in Scripture of God's law. James is going to teach on faith and works, and inherent in that discussion is is the works of the law, by which we might produce good works. And if you heard last week, you remember in the previous passage, James had a lot to say about the law of God. And so it's a natural place for us to begin with this foundation building. But this is where questions quickly start to pile up, like water breaching a dam. It's just, they're, they're overflowing, the questions here. And for many, this can be an overwhelming topic, the law of God. How much do you know about the law? I'll ask you some, some questions. First, what is God's law? How would you define it? How many laws are there? How do these laws function? What is the mosaic law? How did it function for Israel? How does the Mosaic law relate to us today? Are we still under the Ten Commandments? Are we under all of the commandments or some or none? And how do you tell? Also, what about, you know, all those other nations that didn't have the law of Moses? Were they still under some law or not? And if so, which one? And what happened to God's law when Christ came? How did Jesus view the law? What does it mean to say that Jesus fulfilled the law? Are we still under the law? How does being saved by faith relate to the law? I could keep going. There's a lot of good and necessary questions to answer when it comes to the law. Could could you answer all those? I would have to say that in my experience with interacting with Christians, the law has to be one of the, the least understood subjects in Scripture and just in the lives and the minds of, of your average Christian. Even mature Christians, they know a thing or two about the Bible, but they still can't seem to make heads and tails of the place and the purpose of the law. And for some, the problem is that they've never been taught. And is that you, I wonder? Have you ever heard a lesson or a sermon on our relationship in the church to the law of God? Well, you're about to. Our goal today is to help you grow in your knowledge of the Bible, specifically concerning the law of God. 
And this is going to help you understand not only James 2, but just all of Scripture and what God still expects of you and how you are to live before him. So we're going to begin now. In general, when you think of the law of God, what comes to your mind? If you had to give just a one-word definition of God's law, what would that be? You might think rule or restriction or command, but I want to give you a different word to think of the law. Use the word revelation. Revelation. God's law is all about revealing. It's a revelation. God, in giving his law, he's revealing something. What's he revealing? Two things. First, obviously, God is revealing his will. God's law can be defined as the revelation of his will for his creatures. God created us in his image for a purpose, and his law is a revelation of how we can live according to that purpose. So first, you can think of God's law as his will revealed. And secondly, you can think of God's law as his character revealed. The law of God is also a revelation of God's own character and perfections. Our God is a revealing God, and and in giving the law, he's revealing himself. All of the commands, as you go through and think on them, they spell out some implications for the character of God. They all show his character in some way. Some directly, like the command to not murder, reveals that God values life. God is a God of life and not death. And only God has the authority to take life. He gives, he takes. That's who our God is. Other laws reveal God's character indirectly. Think of all the food laws and restrictions for Israel in the Old Testament. These were not everlasting moral laws of God. Rather, he gave them to show Israel a picture of his own holiness. He wanted them to be set apart and distinct from the nations, just like he is set apart and distinct from all the other gods. So God's law is first a revelation of his will, and second, a revelation of his character. And then you need to combine these two purposes of the law together into one, where God gave his law as a revelation of his will, that we might be conformed to his character, that we might be like him. God gave his law that we as creatures might be conformed to his image. And hence the the common refrain in the law, like Leviticus 19.2, where God says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. We are given the law to reflect his nature. So that gives you just a basic overall understanding of what the law of God is. It's a revelation of his will and his character. Now, that revelation is expressed differently in different stages or or ages of human history. You've heard of perhaps a progressive revelation. It just means that as time goes on, God is progressively revealing more of himself to his people. And as God reveals more of himself, so his law takes new shape. His law, you might say, evolves. And as the ages pass, God's laws take on some new forms because in each stage of redemptive history, God is further revealing himself. And so we should expect that the the nature or or the, the form of God's laws would take shape as time goes on. Now, I want to help you get this. So we're going to do a little survey of how God's laws have taken different shape throughout the different stages of redemptive history, from creation to Abraham to Moses to Jesus. So we'll start with creation. And if you like, you can turn to Genesis 1. I'm going to be moving fast, so if you want to follow along, you'll have to move fast as well. Genesis 1. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, did he give them a law? Yes, he did. What did that law consist of? You might think just one command, but there were several laws they had to live by. God revealed his will for his creatures that they might reflect his nature. And you can look at Genesis 1.28, for example. 
It says God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. These positive ordinances were like standing orders for mankind by which they would be reflecting the nature of God in the world. God is a God of peace and order and harmony. And man was created to reflect that on earth by walking in his ways. Now, of course, in Genesis 2, we get the one negative prohibition they were given. Genesis 2, 17, you shall not uh, eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Of course, you know what happens after that. Satan tempted Eve to eat of that forbidden fruit, telling her it was the good stuff. Satan convinced Eve that God in in his law, he was actually withholding from them that which is good. God didn't really want them to have good life, full of blessing. He was holding back from them. And so Eve believed that lie and she ate. But she's not the only one. Ever since, people have viewed God's laws negatively. God's laws are are restrictions. They restrict life and joy and fun. All of his commands are like buzzkills. They keep us from from having a good life and from, from having fun in life. For example, the world says, what's so wrong with a little sexual promiscuity or, or immorality? You see, God's laws, they're just keeping us from pleasure and joy. But in reality, the opposite is true. God is a God of life, and all of his laws are designed to show us what true life looks like. The way of the world is only death. Just think, for example, all of the human suffering and pain and hardship and disease and, and literally death that have resulted from sexual morality and adultery. But God's ways lead us to a deeper joy and a life full of peace that's found in just knowing and enjoying God and his ways. God's laws cannot give us life, as we will learn, but they certainly show us life to the fullest, life under the sun as God intended. And his ways are best because he is best. So think of God's laws like a fence. Inside is this wonderful playground, has everything we need, everything for our heart's content. Outside is a jungle filled with dangers and and deadly animals. And God tells us, just stay in the fence. It's good in the fence. There's peace in the fence. It's here for your good. It's keeping you from harm and suffering. That the fence is not meant to enslave you. It gives you freedom from fear and worry and death. So just live life inside the fence and you can have a life full of peace and joy and blessing. But if you go outside the fence, you can expect, well, fear, worry, anxiety, pain, suffering, hardship, strife, anger, hatred, betrayal, and ultimately death. And when you see sin for what it is, I hope you've learned this lesson yourself. You, you see all the, all just the suffering it brings in life, yours and others, just, it's not worth it. You come to realize, you know what, God's laws they're actually good. They're not just like a buzzkill. They're good. Like Paul expressed in Romans seven twelve. the law is good. This fence is good. I, I want to be inside the fence. But the problem is ever since the fall, we're, we're born with hearts of rebellion. And so by nature, where do our sinful hearts want to go? We all want to go outside the fence. We all just want to go explore believing the lie that the grass is greener on the other side, that God's laws are keeping us from the good life. And so we all go outside from birth, and that's why we all find suffering and even death in life. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. This is the way of fallen man now, though, to go his own way. We cast off God's rules, even though they're showing us the way to life. And we make our own rules, even though they lead only to death. Now, sometimes we speak of sin as lawlessness, 
right? Sin is lawlessness. In reality, no one's really lawless. It's just that we reject God's laws and make our own. We define our own right and wrong to make our own kingdom for our own glory. The word for this is autonomy. Do you know what that word means? comes from the Greek, from the Greek word autos, meaning self, and namos, meaning law. It's a self-law, a law to oneself. And we were created as creatures to live in loving dependence on our Heavenly Father, but we rebelled because we wanted autonomy. We wanted to be a law to ourselves, which is crazy when you think about it, because we as creatures owe our every breath to God. We're not autonomous. We are entirely dependent, but this is just the nature of man's rebellion. And after the fall here in Genesis 3, man's wickedness quickly grows. His rebellion proceeds unchecked and reaches a fever pitch such that by Genesis 6, we read in Genesis 6, 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. The world became filled with wickedness and violence and immorality. And so God showed the consequences of sin by judging the world with a flood. Which just goes to show there's no life outside the fence. There's no lasting, blessed, eternal life outside of God's ways. Thankfully, though, not everyone lived in unchecked rebellion. Not everyone was autonomous. There were certain people who sought to walk in God's ways according to God's law. So if you look at Genesis 5, 22, it speaks of Enoch who walked with God. And then in Genesis 6, verse 9, we find that even in the midst of the wicked flood generation, there was one, Noah, and it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. And Noah walked with God. As Adam and Eve used to walk with God in the garden, in, in the fence, now there are a few who are found that they're still walking with God. There was a small remnant of people who loved God and honored God and, and sought to walk in his ways according to his law. And this continues with a major Old Testament figure, Abraham. He too is described as having walked with God. Abraham is known as the father of the faith because he makes clear that a saving relationship with God, it's not based on law keeping, it's based on faith. And so Genesis 15, 6 tells us that Abraham believed in the Lord and he, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. We'll see you later. That's a huge verse, according to James 2. We'll get to that in weeks to come. But the point is that hundreds of years before the law of Moses, there was Abraham, and he found the righteousness of God. But it was found not by law-keeping, not by good works. That righteousness came to him as a gift from God, purely on the basis of faith. And so he was justified by faith. But that being said, that's true. But Abraham, he still kept the law of God. Though justified by faith, he still sought to live in God's ways. And did you know, God himself affirmed that Abraham was a law keeper. Genesis 26, verse 5, God says, He's talking to Isaac. He says, Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. These nouns all foreshadow words that would later be used to describe the Torah, the, the Mosaic law. But that law was still hundreds of years away. In fact, in Abraham's day, as far as we know, there was no written law of God. So when God says that Abraham kept his laws, it make you wonder, like, what law is he talking about? There was no Moses, Mosaic law yet. So what law did Abraham keep? Remember, we're talking about the law as a revelation 
of God's character and will. So what form did, did God reveal his character and his will to people before Moses? The answer to this is the law written on the heart. There's a law written on the heart. This is an unwritten law. Some might say a natural law that God installed in the hearts of every person, which is reflected by their conscience. And the apostle Paul speaks of this internal law in Romans 2, 14 and 15. You can listen. Romans 2, 14 and 15, where where Paul says this. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, he's talking about the law of Moses, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. The Gentiles were not given the Mosaic law. And so they would not be held accountable to the Mosaic law. But they still had a form of God's law, a revelation of God's will. Found where? It was found in their hearts that they were born with the innate knowledge of God, his character, and his will. And it was known through their conscience, convicting them of right and wrong. Now, granted, Romans tells us that they can still suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and they can harden their conscience, but nonetheless, nonetheless, rather, Romans 1 confirms that God gave to every person some testimony of his character and his will. Now, you might ask, what does this internal law consist of? Well, ancient Jewish rabbis taught that the Gentiles would only be held accountable to seven laws. They called these the seven laws of Noah. And these seven laws actually come from ordinances given to Adam and Noah after the flood, and they apply to all humanity. I'll quickly read them for you. They're going to sound familiar. Number one, do not worship idols. Number two, do not blaspheme God. Three, do not murder. Four, do not commit adultery or sexual morality. Five, do not steal. Six, do not eat the flesh of a live animal. And seven, the only positive one is to establish courts for justice. And many theologians would agree that, generally speaking, these seem to capture the essence of God's unwritten moral law that he has programmed each one of us with from birth. And all people who have never received the law of Moses, people who never heard of the Bible, they will still be judged for their deeds but only on the basis of this unwritten law, the law written on their hearts. Now, this internal law of God has its limitations because it only reveals God's character and his will in a limited and indirect way. But God saw fit to reveal more of himself to humanity. So as history progressed, God's revelation progressed. And so naturally his law progressed. He was going to reveal more of himself. And so starting with Abraham, God made a special covenant with him and his descendants to bless them forever. And fast forward about 400 years, and God was going to make a move on that promise. The descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, had become a great and numerous nation, but they were enslaved in Egypt. And so God himself would redeem them. Through his servant Moses, he rescued them. He called them out to Mount Sinai. And there God entered into another covenant with them as a nation. This covenant is known as the Mosaic Covenant. He would be their God. They would be his people. And they would reflect his nature among the nations by walking in his ways. And as such, God gave them a new law. This is the law of Moses, which I'm sure you've heard about. So now we need to talk a little bit about the law of Moses, which is a huge subject. The Gentiles may have had their seven commands, but do you know how many commands are found in the law of Moses? 613. The Mosaic law dominates scripture. It's the very fabric of the Old Testament. 
And you will never arrive at, at a full understanding of the New Testament without knowing the law of Moses. The Mosaic law is such a big deal that I'll tell you right now, we'll be spending all of our time next week on it because then we'll have time to answer all of those tough questions like, is the Mosaic law for today? What parts carry over? What parts don't carry over? How do you tell? Did Jesus replace this law? Now, how does the Mosaic law relate to us in the church? These are essential questions and it's, look, it's a complex issue. So we're going to save our all that for next week. But for now, I still want to give you this big picture look of God's laws in their different forms. And the Mosaic law is a big form. You need to know about it. This law is a legal code. And it's found primarily in the first five books of the Bible. Those together are known as the Torah, the law. And these books present an extensive legal code. Mostly given by God through Moses to Israel at Mount Sinai. They govern life under God for the nation of Israel. You know that there's a prominent place given to 10 of these 613 commands, the 10 commandments or the Decalogue as they're called. They summarize how God's people are to love God and and love one another. But there are many other types of laws. They had civil laws that pertain to government and commerce like debt and property redemption. There were many case laws, like what to do in a given case. Like what to do when your ox gores a neighbor. Well, there's case law for that. Of course, there are criminal laws that dealt with crime in the community, like theft and adultery and murder. Now, you expect these laws from any culture, but God also gave to Israel in the Mosaic law a bunch of these ceremonial laws pertaining to the religious practice and worship. These govern their their diet, their offerings, their sacrifices, their feasts, festivals, the priests, and more. You think, you know, what's the point of all these laws? Well, the point for many of them was to make Israel distinct. To give them a very unique culture and a distinct national identity that would separate them and just make them so different from all the the pagan Gentile nations around them. This was God making them holy or set apart that they might reflect God's holiness. Another key to understanding the Mosaic law is just to remember that you're dealing with a theocracy. You know what that is? Imagine if church and state were the same thing. That was Israel, a theocracy. And so many of their laws were given just to govern life in a theocracy, like tithing, all the tithing laws, that was basically their tax code. In all, God gave Israel all these laws to govern them as a holy nation in a dark world that they might let their light shine to all the other nations and that all the other nations might come to know that their God was the true God. Now, along these lines, the purpose of their law was never to save Israel, You realize that? That at a national level, they were already redeemed. God already unconditionally chose them. He already rescued them. He already made them his own corporately. And the law was never intended to answer the sin problem, but rather it functions like all of God's laws. It reveals, it reveals God's character and it reveals God's will so that his people might be like him. But this is where, when you look at just the intensity And the complexity of the Mosaic law really shows off another function of God's law. And that is to convict of sin and to show the need for individual salvation. Like Paul learned in Romans 5.20, he said the law came in so that transgression would increase. And when God gave this law, it served the function of increasing man's awareness of sin. And his inability to meet God's perfect standard. I mean, it's just so clear. When you look at this law, you can't keep this law. You can't keep all 613 commandments every day of your life without exception. No, we all transgress. This law promises blessing for obedience, but cursing for disobedience. We all disobey. We would all be cursed 
And then you study about the sacrificial system, you know, to cover sins. And when you really look at the details, you know what you learn? There's not enough bulls and goats and rams and sheep. There's just not enough animals to cover all of our sin. But in this way, the law also functions like a tutor, leading people to God just to beg for mercy, to seek his mercy. It leads us to hope in God for personal redemption through faith. Paul said in Galatians 3.21, Is the law contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. You see, the law does not have the ability to give you life. It only reveals, remember? It's revelation. It reveals God's character and his will. It reveals God's righteousness. And so as a standard, it also reveals which one of us are righteous. Who meets the standard? But in that regard, we all fall short. And so the law only reveals that we are all unrighteous. We are not like God. And that's a problem. You know, picture a tightrope across the Grand Canyon. And the other side is heaven. You just got to make it to the other side. But you also have to go with the refrigerator on your back. It's just impossible. The Mosaic law is like the tightrope. It, it shows the way to life, but in showing us the way, it also makes clear we can't get there this way. There's got to be another way, because if this is the only way, we're not going to make it to the other side. It's just impossible. We don't meet this standard. And so the Mosaic law simply made crystal clear to God's people that our only hope is found outside the law. There's got to be another way. And indeed, there is another way. This is why the law was filled with many foreshadows of one who would come as a savior to provide the way. It's still a narrow way, but it's the only way of salvation. And of course, we know that savior is Christ. And so Paul said right after in Galatians 3.24, he said, therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. You know, because of our fallen nature and indwelling sin, like Paul argued in Romans 7, hey, the law is good, but because of our sinful nature, it effectively imprisons us and makes us slaves of death. But then we're appointed to Christ, the one who sets us free from the law of sin and death, Romans 8, 2. And just as God led Israel out from slavery to Egypt, so he leads us out from slavery to sin in Christ, by faith. You know, Israel failed as God's people because they made the mistake of believing that righteousness came by law-keeping. They traded love for God and faith in God with just law-keeping. The result is legalism, but that can only condemn, that cannot save. But God promised a day when he would call out a new people, this people would have a new mediator, not Adam, not Moses, but the Messiah, Christ. This people would have a new covenant, not the Mosaic covenant, but a new set of promises to give them life. God would give them even new hearts that they could obey him and walk in his ways and reflect his nature. And to cap it all off, he was going to give them a new law. With this new covenant would come a new law. Where would this law be found? Well, listen now to Jeremiah 31, verse 33, where God says, This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You know, the problem has never been with God's laws in any of their forms. The problem has been with us, our sin natures, our hearts of rebellion and autonomy. But God himself would solve this problem by creating a people for himself, by giving them forgiveness of sins and a new heart. And then he would take his eternal law, 
the revelation of his character and his will. And he would write it on their new hearts by his Holy Spirit, enabling them to once and for all to obey, to walk in his ways, that they might fulfill the purpose for which they were created, which is to reflect the image of God to this world. And this now is the age we are living in. After centuries of Israel living under the law of Moses, God sent Christ. He was born under the law. But whereas the law came through Moses, grace and truth were realized in Jesus Christ. That's John 1.17. Who is Jesus? He's the incarnate revelation of God. Do you realize that? Christ, when you think about it, he's the ultimate form of God's law, the revelation of God's will and God's character, the perfect revelation. And so it's only natural that as this Christ came and he inaugurated a new covenant for new people, the church, it came with a new law. This is also a topic we'll cover a bit more next week, but now in the church, we are no longer under the law of Moses. Christ himself fulfilled that law. So we are no longer under it. But like Paul argued in Romans 7, 1, the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. But he says in verse 4, we've been made to die to that law through the body of Christ. And now he says in verse 6, we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in the newness of the spirit and not the oldness of the letter. And so we are freed from the law of Moses. But that does not mean we are now a lawless people. We still have a law, but now it is what we call, like we said last week, the law of Christ. The law of Christ, which is a greater and even greater, and we would say perfect revelation of the will of God and the character of God. What is the law of Christ? Well, in a way, you could say it's just Christ himself, his person, his works, his teaching, as he himself reveals to us, above all, the will and character of God. But the law of Christ is also contained in the inspired teaching of the apostles and prophets of the New Testament. This law tells us how to love God and to love others as ourselves. And whereas we're not saved by any law, but by grace, this new covenant law for the church, it's still now a standard for living. This is how we are to live. This is how we are to reflect the image of God to the world. The difference is that now, having been given a new heart with this law written down on our new hearts and having been given the Holy Spirit, we are finally able to actually do it, to actually obey in a way that pleases God and bears fruit and models him. And the result for those who believe is life, true life. The promise of blessing is realized in Jesus and and understand that Christ brings us not just life after death, but even life before death, life lived under God right now. And I pray that you would find that life by staring into the the standard of God's perfect law and just seeing how far you fall short, that you can't make it across on your own, that you have sinned and therefore you are cursed, but that you would then turn and look and see Christ, the Savior, who, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And he shows you the only way to God, and that's through him, through his death and resurrection, his forgiveness and his salvation. And you must go to him in faith to find life, life to the fullest, lived in the fruit of the Spirit now and hereafter. Unfortunately, though, not all believe that report. In fact, even after Christ, man continues in his rebellion against the law of God. The church is called to live out this new covenant law of Christ to let our light shine to the whole world that the nations might still come to know the one true God. But not all are going to believe. In fact, scripture teaches that the world will only grow 
darker. Like in the days of Noah, things will proceed from bad to worse. We've done a little survey of the key ages of redemptive history in Scripture, from creation to Abraham to Moses to Jesus. But did you know the Bible talks about a a yet future age before the coming of the kingdom? It's a brief age known as the tribulation. What's interesting about that future age of tribulation is that it's characterized by one thing, lawlessness, absolute lawlessness. And furthermore, there's a key figure in that age when man's rebellion reaches its zenith. That figure, I'm sure you know, is known as the Antichrist. This figure rises up. He promises world peace, although he has other plans. What's really interesting about him, though, is he has another name in Scripture. Do you know that other name? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. He's known as the man of lawlessness, the lawless one. Isn't that interesting that this figure comes? He is the antithesis of Christ, the Antichrist, and he just so happens to be anti-law. He is the lawless one. Now, of course, he's not totally anti-law. He's just anti-God's law. And he will instead set himself up as God. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 says that he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And as God, do you know what he does? He makes his own law. Daniel 7.25 says that he will make alterations in the times and the laws. Now, isn't that interesting too? That this figure will set up his very own law because he's building his own kingdom to his own glory. It just represents the absolute height of man's rebellion against this God and his ways. This goes for Satan as well, who empowers him. Satan cannot be incarnate, but as he fills the man of lawlessness, this will be as close as Satan gets to ever being God and being worshipped. But thankfully, that time will be short-lived. When Christ returns, he will slay the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth. His reign of lawlessness will end, and Christ will usher in his reign on earth featuring his law, his perfect law. And the point is, though, that, you know, the story doesn't end well for rebels, for those who persist in going against God and his ways. It only ends well for those who humbly just bow down in love to this Lord under his royal law by faith. Only these will enter his eternal kingdom. In the very final age, we learn that God sets up a new home, a new heavens and a new earth for this new people under their new covenant and their savior. Read about this in the final two chapters of the Bible. And what's interesting here is that three times in Revelation 21 and 22, it says that lawless ones and the immoral and the wicked and rebels will have no place in that eternal kingdom. They will be left, it says, outside, outside the fence, you could say, destined only for the lake of fire. And on that day, you don't want to be outside the fence, for there they will find only a second death. But we see again that, you know, it's, it's good inside the fence, inside God's ways. In the fence, there's life to the fullest right now, a life of joy and peace in Christ, and then there's eternal life hereafter. In reality, we're, we're all lawbreakers. We are all lawless ones from birth and rebels. But our hope is found in Christ who died so that rebels and sinners and enemies of God might be forgiven and justified and invited in, back in to God's place. And so go to Christ and accept his offer of life, which he says again in Revelation 22, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. 
and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. You know, the gift of life is free, but you must go to the Savior. So go. And as we will continue to see in the coming weeks, Jesus Christ truly is the ultimate fulfillment of the law of God in its perfect form. He comes perfectly revealing the will of God and the character of God. And whereas we fall short of the will of God and the character of God, Christ is also the one who can redeem us and make us new. That we can finally reflect and live out the character and the will of God that we were created to do. So go to Christ. And in him, you will find the fulfillment of the law of God in your own life. Until next time, I'll leave you with this encouraging reminder from Romans 8, 1 through 2. That there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. Let's pray. Our glorious God and your your son, Christ Jesus, we magnify you this morning just in beholding the revelation of, of you, your works, your will, your character in your law. There we behold more of who our God is. And we thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself. We, we testify with the Apostle Paul that your, your word and your will, your law is good and righteous and holy and just. The problem, though, is that we are not. We are sinners. And as we stare into the mirror of the law, we see how we don't measure up to your perfect righteousness. We fall short and therefore are condemned. We're under the curse of this law. Well, we thank you even more that you continue to reveal yourself, including your mercy and your grace and your love, by sending Christ, your own Son, an incarnate revelation to die for us, to die in our place on the cross, to pay for all of our law-breaking, to bear the curse of the law for us, that we be forgiven and even made new. We, We thank you for Christ, who is the fulfillment of your law. And I pray now that we turn to him for those here who haven't, that they would be convicted by your law, that they need another way. Being a good person, even coming to church counts for nothing. They need Christ and him alone to humbly repent and and turn to him as their savior. May they do that even now. But for us, Lord, we we, want to behold more of Christ and now walk in his ways. You have redeemed us and given us new hearts with, the, with your spirit, reading the law of God in our hearts. And I pray we, we learn that and take that seriously and now live out your ways and your will that we might finally reflect your character to this world that all may come to know you as one true God and, and Christ Jesus whom you have sent. So may we be faithful in that to your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.